Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, an entire park system? So who are these parks for and, and what kind of residents are being prioritized? For this special episode in this limited series, we'll be querying urbanism in our discussion with guests Ryan Persadi, Cornell Gray, Ferdy Lopez, and Samuel Yoon. Join us as we explore a different lens of the cities of inequality in conversation with myself as guest host, Thomas Siddle, alongside Lovna Ali, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. So my name is Thomas Siddle, and I'm so excited to be guest hosting this episode alongside my wonderful colleagues at the School of Cities at the University of Toronto. Today, we are joined by some incredibly smart, generous, and insightful researchers and students from the Women and Gender Studies Institute in the University of Toronto. Queer lives are often un- or misrepresented in our thinking of urbanism, and today we want to learn from our guests about what queer work and lives mean for urbanism by listening to their work and experiences in the city. To begin this episode, I want to start with a quote from Dr. Catherine Nash, who has said that the post-mo, that's post-modern, generation is less interested in, or does not frequent as often, Toronto's traditional gay village, and is utilizing alternative urban spaces in ways that rework the gendered and sexualized meanings of those locations, and suggests transformative processes are underway for LGBT social, political, and economic life in Toronto. As we hear at the School of Cities know from our everyday work, Toronto is rapidly changing for better and for worse. The lessons of shifting queer life forms that work across the city are often unseen, and we hope to learn more about the implications of this for this city today and how this can be mobilized to better urbanism today. Last summer, I conducted field work in Beijing where I explored the effects of gentrification on transboundary migration inside queer communities and spaces. I noticed an Anglo dominance of Chinese queer spaces, ones that shifted the meanings of queerness. A lesson I learned was that diverse queer experiences means that the way we come to celebrate queerness in our city should reflect diversity, but not essentialize it. At the same time, the ways that queer communities organize and preserve themselves amidst powerful forces teaches us a lesson about building their communities, and it can teach us a lot about how we could build our own communities. In Beijing, amidst the difficulty in accessing antiviral medications, communities work together to ensure that these drugs make their way to people in need. In Toronto, communities and mutual aid organizations organized online and in neighborhoods are working through the COVID-19 pandemic to ensure the material resources needed for survival are there when there is financial difficulty and resource poverty, and denial and erasure of people's needs. Simply, $2,000 a month is not enough for many people in this expensive city. And so we seriously need to reevaluate our relationship to the city in order to build it better and to build it in a way that is responsive. That's an imaginative, creative, and queer process, and it will always begin with people. Today, our guests will speak about and highlight their work, experiences, and or ideas as lessons to enable better city building, and we hope to begin a conversation about why queer work matters for urbanism. An EGAL online survey of just over 2,300 Canadians released last week says more than half of LGBTQ households have experienced layoffs and reduced hours, as opposed to 43% of Canadians overall. All of these things are things that we're already seeing in this community, and then COVID-19 has just made it bigger. Local agencies say this stems from a mixture of issues, one being systemic discrimination. Some of the periphery factors that impact sustainability and employment like having a secure natural support network as well as having access to other systems like healthcare, transportation, etc. Jess Smith co-founded the Sociable Distancing Shows to help folks connect and share art while in physical isolation. Our queer community is our family. 
they are our mothers, our siblings, our fathers, um, and that's why, you know, the last show was so important to happen when it did uh, near Mother's Day. And we've adapted. We, we figured out a way of going with it, and it just opens our community up so much more because we can have performers from all over the world. Now I'd like to introduce our guests. Ryan is an educator, artist, and PhD student in Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto. He holds an MA in Ethnomusicology and Sexual Diversity Studies from the University of Toronto. His doctoral research investigates queer Indo-Caribbean diasporas and the ways in which performance, and specifically music and dance, offer salient queer archives for descendants of indenture to negotiate as well as disrupt normative notions of sexual citizenship, belonging, queer identity, and pride in Toronto and New York City. Outside of academia, Ryan is committed to solidarity and coalition building among QT BIPOC communities in the diaspora. As an activist scholar, he works with the Caribbean Equality Project based in New York City and Caribbean Toronto. Ferdi was an associate professor in literature at the University of Santo Tomas, Manila. She was the vice chair of the Cultural Education Committee of the Subcommission on Cultural Dissemination of the National Commission for Culture and the Arts in the Philippines, and a faculty council member of the Philippine Culture Education Program. In 2015, she was cited by Eight List Philippines as one of the eight iconic teachers students love in college. She's a PhD student at the Women and Gender Studies Institute of the University of Toronto. Cornell is a PhD candidate at the Women and Gender Studies Institute, University of Toronto. His doctoral research examines how Black queer men enact kinship and intimacy through physical touch. This work takes seriously the importance of skin-to-skin contact in maintaining bodily, psychic, and emotional well-being, and so pushes against systems that mark contact between Black queer men as risky, improper, and dangerous. This project also mines the slavehold, primarily articulated as a site of violence, for moments of Black queer pleasure as a way to rethink Black diasporic relations. Cornell is a research associate at the Dalalana School of Public Health, where he is investigating the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the lives of gay and bisexual men. He is also the co-host of the Fish Tea Podcast, a show about queer life in the Caribbean. Samuel is a PhD student in the Women and Gender Studies Institute at the University of Toronto. His research is interested in Asian diasporic cultural productions and their insights into practices of queer kinship. To start off, I'd like to ask all of our guests about the role of identity in the city. What is the role of identity in building structures that govern and eventually become the city? And why might identity be important to urbanism and the construction of the city? And then after answering that question, I really want to ask our guests, how does your work and life experiences inform your approach to urbanism? So your first question you're thinking about And you said how identity and how structures of identity shape how the queer city is made or how the queer queer city is framed. I think about, you know, in one sense, queer as like gender and sexual diversity um, or gender and sexual difference. Identity, you know, for me, when I first started doing my work, I was thinking a lot about identity. But as I continue to do my work, both as, you know, as a PhD student, but also as someone who does work in the queer community um, as, as an artist, I think about how identity can become very hegemonic and how identity actually is antithetical to the project that queerness was supposed to do, which was supposed to be about, you know, multiplicity and openness and transgression. And so, you know, when I think about the ways in which queer identity, you know, and in quotations, has been kind of co-opted to kind of forefront a particular experience, especially in a place like Toronto, um, where, you know, the politics of what it means to be, you know, to have pride, you know, again, pride in quotations, or the, these these um, cultural articulations that come out of, you know, these, these organizations like pride that are based in what is supposed to be queer identity, again, only works to serve a particular type of community, which ends up being a lot of the time cisgender, white, you know, upper to middle class gay men. And we see that specifically in the ways in which, you know, just to give a personal example, like outside of academia, I'm a drag artist. And so um, I do a lot of work on cultivating uh, QT BIPOC spaces for performers, um, but also for audiences to come and engage with art that exists outside of what goes on in like the Toronto Gay Village. And from my own experience, I've, I've been doing drag now for like four years, four or five years. I've been booked maybe in the village three times. And the reason for that is a lot of us who are doing political work in drag or, you know, I work with, I don't work with just drag artists. I work with like 
poets, spoken word artists. I work a lot with burlesque dancers and those sort of thing is to do a particular type of work that seeks to push back and resist, you know, this very like homonormative politic in a space like the village is actually asked to being thrust out of it. And so, you know, even with pride stuff, like I've helped organize like QPOC spaces during pride that have literally been physically removed from the village space, like thrust outside of, you know, the, the church in Wellesley area. And it was only with, you know, the Black Lives Matter protest um, in 2017 that we started to see a lot of other POC space, non-Black POC spaces also come back and emerge because BLM had specifically asked as part of their list of, uh, their list of demands for those spaces to become, again, funded again. And so I think a lot of the work that takes place around the the realm of identity is also very non-generative to the political and solidarity work that needs to happen in this contemporary moment. And what ends up really happening is the structures that come in place are, again, institutional structures that are made to benefit that particular white cisgender gay experience. Well, then all again, silencing and erasing and not creating room for the types of solidarities and coalitions that are actually extremely important right now and extremely needed. Thank you so much for that response. I really did find it enlightening, especially to learn about the ways in which, you know, the spaces push back against, you know, drag performers who are working on political work and working on these, you know, community um, projects, as you've said, with, you know, artists, with burlesque dancers. I find that so fascinating. Just really quickly for our guests, could you define what homonormativity is? For sure. I mean, uh, I don't know if (laughs) Sam or Cornell also want to chime in. I don't want to take up too much space here. Um, Feel free to chime in anyone else at all if you want to talk about, you know, your experiences with homonormativity, the way you interpret it, you know, that type of stuff. Let's have that type of generative discussion. Um, Sam or Cornell, just before I answer, do either of you want to kind of chime in? Sure. I can do a non sort of academia version beyond sort of the Lisa Duggins formation of homonormativity, but I think to make it like accessible to folks, it's it's replicating the same models of gender and sexuality that are provided in a heteronormative context, so by a heterosexual uh, community. So then it reflects that in gay communities. So gay people begin to take up sort of models of gender and sexuality that are actually not really quite transgressive, but just replicate this sort of stringent, uh, limited ideas of gender and sexuality. So we want marriage, we want monogamy, we want to be good consumers uh, and participate uh, happily in capitalism as sort of good homonormative subjects. And uh, all of us are sort of implicated in that and have been told these narratives that that's sort of the good life (laughs) that queers can now participate in. And I think, as Ryan was sort of mentioning, like queers of colors and queer diasporic spaces are questioning sort of that homonormative mold and are sort of offering something else. And I can sort of speak to um, sort of those other else sort of spaces, specifically to the queer Asian diaspora later on. But that's sort of my sort of assessment of sort of homonormativity. And it's very much attached to, like, as Ryan was saying, the village. The village is sort of like the key homonormative space um, that we see uh, exemplified. Thank you so much for that, Sam. Um, Did Ryan or Cornell, did you want to jump in on that or add something else into the discussion? Cornell? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to go back to your initial question about the building of cities and identities, I mean, I think space, the way that we understand space generally has a lot to do with identity. One of the things that I was thinking about earlier before even thinking about this idea of queerness and sexuality and so forth there was a time in Toronto's history um, I didn't grow up in Toronto so maybe someone who did can speak to this more extensively but my understanding is that before the suburb was imagined as this place where middle class folks would go and sure that might still likely be the case now but Toronto is also now becoming a space an area defined by a particular kind of Wealth identity is also manifest in terms of a particular kind of culture. I was thinking about how there was a story a while back about residents in a particular neighborhood downtown and didn't want to get a food basics or something because it was too low end. But I'm also thinking about how identity is important in thinking about how we reshape the city. So I'm assuming that, you know, most, well, urban planners now, I think, are more attuned to this. But when the city was being made... Accessibility wasn't, I don't think, uh, a primary concern. And now we're at a point to be thinking about how can we reshape the city, reform the city in a way that um, caters to these different identities. And I mean, I mentioned that even while recognizing that 
the city is still invested in um, expelling uh, houselessness in a particular way, in a particular kind of way with the, I, I forget what the, the, the term is called, but basically they have all of these kind of infrastructure to prevent homeless people from like resting or like lying, lying down, which is also um, a strategy for them to maintain a particular kind of space. To Ryan's point about the, the village, what I wanted to add was how, you know, the gay village also becomes this kind of interesting um, commodity within cities generally so much now that, you know, tourists who come, the gay village in all of these cities is, is like a, a tourist attraction that they come to consume and, and partake in, right? And we've heard stories about how, you know, you know with bachelorette parties, um, folks from different countries, like it becomes this particular spectacle, spectacle of uh, non-normative, um, depending on who you talk to, they might read it as, you know, morally questionable kind of, of, of behavior. And then something else I was thinking too was how the, I think what sometimes gets lost in our discussion about cities and the idea of queerness being centralized within the city, we, we sometimes forget about what queer life, queer life looks like outside of the, the downtown core, outside of the city. Like how does, or what does queer life look like, I don't know, in suburbs, uh, rural areas. Um, I was in a, I was participating in a focus group a couple years ago and I got really annoyed because when we were talking about like access to health services and it didn't seem to be getting through to the other folks in the room that, well, why is it the case that queer people have to be going downtown Toronto to seek a particular kind of care when it comes to their sexual health? Yeah, and I mean, I, I also recognize that people have complicated relationships with their communities for different reasons, in which case it's might be in some ways productive and useful for them to um, leave the suburbs, leave the rural area in order to seek a, a particular kind of service. But it's still kind of sad, I think. Now, um, Cornell, based on what you've like spoken about, you know, the role of identity in, you know, making spaces knowable, kind of almost like that place making, you know, process. And then what Ryan has said about, you know, how it is that, you know, spaces can even push back against those who attempt to bring in this kind of multiplicity of queerness, kind of what I want to ask about, especially going off of, you know, the essentialization of, you know, queerness in the city is, you know, with homonormativity, the politics of homonormativity and pinkwashing of pride and, you know, the perpetuation and almost stabilization of these quote-unquote LGBTQ identities, what does that mean in terms of the formalization of spaces? And has that had an impact on the ways that um, we make sense of queer spaces in the city? Sam? So I definitely feel... um... Uh, able to sort of address that question based on what has been talked about before. But I think me and Cornell and Ryan are sort of talking about the possibilities of an alternative space outside of the village or even within the village, there's a desire to sort of question what has been um, valued so much and that is essentially like white queer spaces. And even within that, I found like that affirming sort of a new sort of identity politics um, happens. So even within uh, queer Asian spaces or other sort of queer of color spaces, there's become sort of more troubling forms of identity politics that do arise out of that, that have that come with their own sort of concerns and issues. And I think when we do, yeah, when we think of, at least in my context, participating in queer Asian spaces, we then sort of have another form of affirmation that happens and sort of who then becomes sort of the ideal subject to participate in those spaces and how do those spaces reinforce their own hierarchies and sort of have their own problematics. So even stating that, I think that these spaces do something else and they provide a sort of a critique of these white queer normative spaces, but also we should recognize the ways in which these spaces are not utopic. Queer of color spaces have their own sort of fraught issues of identity politics that happen and we expect sort of particular ways of performing your identity or, or being sort of queer Asian, at least in my context. And I think these happens in sort of other kinds of spaces. But I also think of not just sort of the identity politics of it. I also think about the ways in which the city, Toronto, sort of can affirm these spaces as well and how it sort of fits in with, once again, sort of these troubling narratives of multiculturalism. So now we can sort of celebrate these sort of unique spaces, sort of queer of color spaces, but not sort of question 
the ways in which they may be sort of troubling spaces in itself. If I could add to what uh, Sam said as well, in addition to creating alternative spaces, we also have to recognize that the village as it is, also vulnerable in a, in a particular kind of way, right? Like only a few months ago, there was GoFundMe or something, but there was a story about uh, Cruise and Tango's potentially being shut down. But I'm also thinking about the number of other kind of queer establishments that have had to, or that have shut down over the past few years for the sake of the gentrification. But that's also interesting because people move to the area because of a particular kind of interest in quote-unquote queer culture but then they end up displacing the people who make queer culture possible and I'm just thinking out loud here but I'm not sure how invested I am necessarily in the formalization or institutionalization of queer space in a certain kind of way because I think at that point you also you risk losing the the spirit of it I'm also thinking about how, because there have been spaces where, you know, queer people of color, queer Black folk have created um, spaces, events, uh, opportunities for a network. And then the moment where it becomes like a thing or a trend or popular or, or mainstream, there is a way that queer, Black, Indigenous people of color end up being evacuated from those spaces at the point that that happens. So I'm also trying to wrestle with that tension as well. I'm thinking through similar things that Cornell brought to the table where, you know, on this question of alternative spaces, I mean, yeah, but at the same time, like, I feel like any any way in which queer space is made now it will never end up being, you know, people always talk about, you know, we need to make safe spaces, blah, blah, blah. Like, a safe spaces don't exist, right? Because at the end of the day, if anything is based in identity politics, there's always going to be a voice that is the center of, every, of all of that organizing, if you want to even call it that, right? Um, so there's always going to be some sort of um, particular history or particular subject or particular type of citizen um, again, in citizen in quotations, that is held at the forefront of that particular space. And so I think we need to also be thinking about what are other ways of building coalitional spaces that are not rooted in identity politics, right? Or I even think about when Cornell brought up Cruise and Tangos, I remember there was a bunch of us who were talking about that online as it was happening. And so many of the white gays and so many of the white performers I know were up in arms about that. But then I remember a bunch of us who, you know, were Black, Indigenous, and people of color were like, well, Cruise has always been like a boys club, which uh, majority of the village is, right? And so, you know, I think a lot of these spaces, people were advocating for them because it provided them a particular type of access to space and a particular type of prestige and reputation through those sorts of spaces, while then also, you know, never really thinking about queer women or not thinking about trans women or trans men or non-binary people or all these sorts of things, because the village has been so saturated in catering to like white gay men that I think as the village is organized right now, there will be no such thing as it stands as a safe space in that in that kind of geography. Um, and I so I think that pursuing that kind of project in this moment when there hasn't been any work, especially on bar owners and organizer, or not organizers, but people who organize those spaces in the village to do any sort of radical social transformation, right? Like there was even, I don't know if you guys have been following, there was a petition um, a couple of weeks ago for this very um, uh, person who runs a lot of the gay bars in the village, who has been kind of known in the village for um, not paying QT BIPOC performers, not booking them, not there. I've, you know, people have had experience where they haven't been paid at all by this person. And so it really took like thousands of signatures for just this one person to issue an apology. And so, I mean, we, we can't really talk about, you know, cultivating a safe space when the people in power and control in these geographies are still in power and control, right? Like people can issue as many apologies as they want, um, but at the end of the day, they're still forefronting those particular types of subjects. And so I think about, you know, we have to do the work to radically reconfigure what queer space could look like, but as it stands, we're not even close to imagining. So I think even thinking about, you know, let's create an alternative space. We're still too much bound up in these queer identity politics to even think about um, or imagine what that space could look like that was actually in pursuit of solidarity as opposed to just like putting it on paper and tokenizing it. Yeah, absolutely agree as well. Um, I think it's a question of inclusion. Like, do we, do we really want to be included into the village? 
that our end goal. And I think it's questioning that as a sort of political social project for queers. Do we really want to be a part of that or do we want to question the formation of that space in itself as a way to get us somewhere else beyond sort of just apologies or token queer Black, Indigenous, straight queens in that space or the occasional queer of color party that's held there once a month? Um, How can we even push against that even more to question the village in itself as a whole? And what does that even look like? I don't, I think I see some sort of potentials and spaces where that's possible, but I think what's always interesting is that even in the formation of alternative spaces, it's always possible for those to get sort of used and propped into a narrative that is once again troubling. So um, I think of sort of queer Asian spaces. So New Ho Queen, that's a, space, that's a space where I performed. I performed in drag. I also performed as sort of a, a go-go dancer slash sort of voguer in that space. And uh, we were like featured in like Toronto now or something. And we're sort of seen as sort of a great multicultural space. And so I think it's about questioning these spaces and trying to ensure that we are thinking about a model beyond identity. And often our entry point to these spaces is through identity. Um, I know that a lot of your work, Ryan, um, and yourself as well, Cornell, is uh, based a lot on the Caribbean and, um, you know, what it looks like to be queer in the Caribbean and in Caribbean spaces and Caribbean cities. You know, there's uh, a very big discourse around um, uh, murder music so to speak, you know, um, songs such as, you know, Chi Chi Man or Boom Boom Bye and those type of driving token sort of pieces that people sort of attach to, you know, reggae and dancehall and, um, you know, what it looks like to be in Caribbean spaces in terms of music and entertainment. And there's a lot of backlash that has come forward because of that. I just uh, would be interested to hear you talk more about that and how the discourse might be different or the same in uh, in queer spaces in the Caribbean. Okay, so I think at this point, Ryan's work speaks more directly on the Caribbean than mine. But what I will say is reggae music, dancehall music is explicitly, you know, homophobic, um, antagonistic towards queer people. Some scholars have made the argument that it's about a kind of figurative, combative kind of wordplay between dancehall artists. I mean, I won't get into that argument here. What I will say is that so many queer Caribbean people really love dancehall. And they and they would be at queer events dancing to these same songs that are said to be homophobic. So I remember being in Jamaica in high school and um, so there's a shop, there's a song called Romping Shop between with uh, Vibes Cartel and Spice. And there's there's like some reference to like man to man, gal to gal, that wrong or something. Gay men would be in the party bending over and lifting legs and doing the most because I think at the end of the day, there is something about the cultural product that is dance hall that Jamaican people generally. Uh, identify with they, they they appreciate the artistic flair. There's also work that's been done to talk about how dancehall in itself is a very queer production. So again, anyone who has seen that versus between Beanie Man and Bounty Killer, both were giving you mad auntie vibes. So I think the conversation around you know homophobia in uh, dancehall country can be expanded a bit more so but i'll leave it there and see what ryan has to say yeah um so much of what cornell said um really you know hit the nail on the head for me as well you know i will say i think a lot of these narratives about um the caribbean um being you know anything associated with the caribbean whether it's in the diaspora or whether it's in the region itself um including its music and including its dance is always seen as um overtly homophobic because of the ways in which Um, you know, mainstream queerness has pathologized any form of sexual diversity that doesn't adhere to its rules and legislations, right? And so, you know, that's why there can be articles and shows that will denounce, you know, places like Jamaica and Trinidad and Guyana as like the most homophobic places in the world. Well, again, failing to realize the, the distinct and harmful 
homo and transphobias that are taking place in a place like Canada. It's just because the Canadian government and Canadian nationalism loves to see itself as the site of liberation and the site of advancement and like how, again, all of these musics have always been queer, right? And they've always carried queer peoples, um, but also have had this like queer potential to transgress and push back and resist and do all these sorts of things. But I think it's all of these ideas that, you know, the West has about itself that in order to be fully a fully liberated queer, like you have to leave the Caribbean and come to diaspora and, you know, live your authentic, you know, authentic in quotations, your authentic life away from all the harm and violence that's going on, you know, in the global South. When those narratives become at the centerpiece of everything that we talk about, works through a very gendered and racially coded mentality that like queer life and trans life cannot exist um, in the global South when we know that queer and trans life um, has always been part of the region and part of the landscape of the region. They have always resisted. They have always organized. But again, it's because of the ways in which mainstream queerness sees itself in the West as better than everyone else um, and as more authentic and more legible than everyone else that things like this, when people say, you know, oh, your music is so homophobic, your dance is so homophobic. Well, like Cor- Cornell mentioned, like, like queers and trans people have been using this music to reclaim themselves and have also found pleasure and desire in dancing and, um, and living through this music. Like my early master's work was on queer soca fets, which are like carnival parties that are associated with, with majority, um, with different carnivals, but often get attached to Trinidad Carnival. And I was looking at these kind of queer, these queer soca fet parties that were coming, that were emerging out of a queer removal from the caravana space, but then also from uh, mainstream queer spaces. Um, Soka has always been directly political and Soka has always been imagined as heterosexual. Like, you know, every time you hear a Soka song, it's always about, we're going to want to wind up on a gal. Like, and it's always imagined that a man is doing that. So, but despite that, there are so many queer artists doing Soka music and doing different things within the archive of Soka music to transgress and push back on these, um, these ideas that heterosexuality is normal. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think, a lot to talk about there, but I think the way in which these songs um, get pathologized as extremely homophobic, but while at the same time turning a, a blind eye to the multiple, multiple homophobies and transphobies that exist in Canada and the States is, again, a form of this, you know, um, situating the West as better than everyone else and as more authentic and more real in terms of being queer. Wow, thank you uh, both for your perspectives. I really, really appreciated your insight. I would ask how, you mentioned that Cruise and Tangos is very much a like white gay man's space. Um, So I'm just curious to know what do those spaces look like for, you know, QT, BIPOC, peoples in Toronto? Coming from the suburbs, I grew up in the suburbs outside of Toronto and moved to downtown for the first time and had the chance to be a part of New Hope Queen, which is a queer Asian sort of space. And it's primarily a, a nightlife space. Essentially, it's a party for queer Asians. And for me, it raised a lot of questions of what it means to sort of engage in this identity politics and sort of how it felt really meaningful for me to have that recognition. But nonetheless, I was very suspicious and sort of paranoid about the problematics of this identity politics because I felt like, once again, it did affirm sort of a particular subject in that space. And um, particularly like gay Asian men, East Asian men, um, and especially masculine gay East Asian men uh, were sort of the individuals who were affirmed in those spaces. So once they had all those problems, of course, Um, but nonetheless, I thought that there were times and moments and particularly through performances, seeing uh, moments where a queer Asian diasporic sort of framework allowed us to sort of push back against a narrow queer Asian identity politics that centers a gay Asian man. Um, So I thought that that was sort of, the potentials in those spaces. I am also was briefly a part of the Toronto Kiki Ballroom scene. I kind of uh, joined that sort of by accident and went to a practice and then sort of got recruited into that space. So for me, that was been a really interesting space um, as a non-Black person participating in the Toronto Kiki Ballroom Alliance, where uh, we know that that history and formation is really grounded in queer and trans Black and Latinx communities. Um, and it's interesting to see the Toronto Kiki Ballroom Alliance and the ways in which um, it, it, on the surface level at times, it really does look like this multicultural site of sort of different races coming together and dancing and sort of, it's been interesting to see the ways in which it also gets sort of consumed by 
particular people, by particularly by white queers and the ways in which it gets uh, fetishized and appropriated and all those sort of troubles. But I've also really um, enjoyed the opportunity to sort of just see and be with different communities. And I always love the sort of image of, of all of us coming to practice. I always had practice on Wednesdays and it was in more towards the East End. And we were all traveling on the TTC from very, very different places across Toronto. Some of us are coming up from Jane and Finch. Some of us are coming all the way from the West End in Etobicoke. And all of us were sort of gathering together. And it wasn't sort of a utopic space. We were all very much aware of our gender, racial, sexual differences. We had we had straight women. We had queer women in that space. We had trans women in that space. We had black gay men. And it was just interesting to see all of that sort of diversity, uh, not in the ways in which like, uh, we sort of think of uh, like a superficial version of diversity, but actually just thinking about our identities and our lived experiences as powerful ways to think about um, belonging and space in a different way beyond the village. Um, and that was really, for me, a potential of what it actually means to create a queer space that isn't just rooted in a sort of singular identity. I really find that so interesting, especially, and I know you maybe didn't mention it specifically, but what I got from there was like this, you know, listening about this joy of identity or being able to take pleasure in this identity. Now, the one thing that I'm kind of hearing from our conversation, especially on identity, you know, is, is you know, in the ways in which identity can both be a site for, you know, resistance and then making space for oneself. And then there's also, you know, hegemonic identity and, you know, whiteness. And immediately I recall Cynthia Weber's work on queer international relations, um, which really goes into the what she calls these um, developmental model of sexuality, wherein, you know, white gay men, you know, follow these colonial logics of ordering, you know, sexuality, specifically white, queer, gay man sexuality, um, in contrast to what she calls these, you know, unfathomable, undevelopable, you know, queers of color. And, you know, I'm seeing that process happening here in Toronto, making, you know, the city almost, you know, impossible in its formal self, you know, for queers of color. And so really what I kind of want to, you know, know is what what do these lessons of, you know, how these, I guess, in a developing city as Toronto, you know, it's going through this, you know, skyscraper construction boom and it's fetishizing development, you know, how do these lessons apply to, you know, our broader communities about how to, you know, resist that, but still being able to, you know, take pleasure in that identity and the identity of the self and is taking pleasure in one's own identity, you know, a form of liberation, you know, from these, you know, hegemonic identities that are, you know, compelled from us as, you know, residents of the city. So one of the things that I was thinking about earlier, I think we need to generally invest more time and energy into thinking about what square space can look like outside of bars. But then, and then I'll loop about bars in, into the story in a second. So I joined this um, LGBTQ sports league last year. There were maybe, I saw maybe at, at most, maybe five Black people, but there was a significant East Asian presence and South Asian presence in terms of, in terms of the, the membership. And they were having a conversation about diversity and how they, they would like to make the, the league more diverse. And um, one of the East Asian guys that was on my team at the time was saying that, oh, like, what do you mean? Like, I think the league is, you know, incredibly diverse. And in my mind, I was thinking this is really interesting because I can see how it would feel that way from your perspective. But as a, you know, as a Black person who sees no Black people, you know, that's completely different. And so that made me think something about proximity to whiteness, even within uh, POC communities, and how, yeah, even 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 in those contexts, the power of, of whiteness reasserts itself. But then on the, the flip end, thinking about what identity can do for us in terms of cultivating joy, to go back to something that Ryan said in terms of how Soka shows up in queer communities, Black Obana has been an event for a few years now in Toronto. And it's interesting because it is merging two sites, cultural productions. That's um, So Black Aram is an event that happens 
uh, during Pride Month, you know, centered around, you know, Blackfoot experiences, uh, Caribana, you know, celebrating Soka, uh, Caribbean culture. We have this event now called Black Cubana, where Blackness and Caribbeanness meet. That is all that I think that offers an opportunity for us to think about queerness, identity in a way that doesn't care whatsoever about whiteness necessarily and says to us that actually Black queerness and Caribbean queerness mesh really well together and that's something really amazing and beautiful. I really enjoyed hearing about, you know, especially the way that you mentioned how Black queerness and Caribbean queerness come together. And would you say that there is you know, a difference, whether it be subtle or not, between, you know, Black queerness and Caribbean queerness. And the only reason I'm asking that is because, you know, in the context of the fluidity, uh, you know, of these identities and the way they work together, you know, they're not so bound in the way that many people, you know, conceive of identity. In considering a queer model for urbanism, or not even a queer model for urbanism, but just generally queering, you know, urbanism, there's also room for, you know, including a diasporic kind of way of seeing, you know, modernism. And I'm kind of like want to get into the ways that, you know, identities are able to cohere and work together without being hegemonic. And there is for sure some overlap between Black queerness and Caribbean queerness. Um, I would say that is self-evident. One of the things I really enjoy, though, about both is that there is a degree of openness that you might not find in in other places. So I so for anyone who has gone to Black Harama, Caribana, Black Obana, there is a way that or 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 there's opportunities for anyone, regardless of like where you come from, where you are, to be invited into into that space. Um, whereas as we've been talking about in earlier conversations about the village, that typically people who aren't white, cis, uh, gay men are excluded. I think in these spaces, there's a kind of open invitation to come as you are, there's space for you here. And I mean, I also think that is the the history of like the Caribbean diaspora, Caribbean diaspora, Black diaspora, because it, it's, the history of it is such that people from, you know, come from like different places and spaces to build and create something different. I think we, yeah, we're thinking about different kind of histories and different genealogies that are taking place here, even though these histories interlap and oversect with each other. So like for me, like I come from, um, I'm mixed race, but my father's side of the family is from Trinidad and Tobago, but we're Indo-Caribbean. And so a lot of my work thinks about the ways in which Indo-Caribbeanness has intersected with um, and been in conversation with Afro-Caribbeanness to produce these new kind of diasporic um, experiences and sensibilities that that again change again when we come to a space like Toronto but in terms of to queerness and just to extend upon Cornell's initial point I think the Caribbean too is like one of the places um, that is so important for thinking about diaspora because of the ways in which you know one, one of my supervisors when I first came to start my graduate work she used to always say the Caribbean is like the first place of what we would now conceive of as multiculturalism without all the kind of nationalist politics that are embedded in multiculturalism. The Caribbean is one of the first places during times of coloniality that we see, you know, East Asian life, Black life, Indigenous life, South Asian life, which kind of produces a queer geography in a, in a sense, like not queer in terms of sexual or gender diversity, but queer in that it was non-normative to how European powers imagined space to be organized according to particular groupings of race and ethnicity. And so I think with that, with spaces like Blacarana and Blacobana, like those have also been spaces where, you know, Asian Caribbean and Indo-Caribbean um, and other forms of Caribbean people grown in proximity to, um, to Afro-Caribbeans have also found space to be included. Soka music is a, even though today it's mostly identified as a black sound, um, it comes out of an encounter between Indo-Caribbeans and Afro-Caribbeans who are collaborating in the early like 1960s. Um, and so these sort of brown black intimacies that are taking place shape a lot of the cultural uh, production that comes out of the region and into diaspora. And I think for that reason, spaces like Black Obana, while they um, forefront the experiences of um, black queer community, have also been really um, open and inviting to engaging in forms of solidarity um, and coalition to non-Black people of color as well. That is, 
there's obviously anti-blackness in urban communities and all this sort of thing but i think the ways in which these spaces come together through a particular sort of politics shape how people engage with them I definitely agree with that sort of sentiment. And I think you like framed it really well that this isn't to sort of write these things off. This isn't about a sort of, okay, uh, we're always in search of like the most utopic, perfect, queer, of color, radical space. Like that's not what we're sort of, at least that's not my politics to sort of say, okay, well, there's nothing valuable there. That's nothing um, because it sort of has its failures and its shortcomings. It doesn't mean that there's something that may be generative there, or there may be some possibility that's meaningful there. Um, so that's definitely my thought on that. And I think that New Hope Queen does have its moments of sort of, of its significance and its ways in which it speaks back to sort of the mainstream white queer communities. But once again, it does have its troubles with sort of affirming a very light skin male body in that space and it still needs to continue to negotiate that and especially in relation to other queers of colors other black queers um, and sort of make sense of the ways in which we need to continue to sort of negotiate those differences i've brought black queer friends into that space i've brought in other sort of different races and i don't only just bring my queer asian friends and for some of them it can be a really joyous wonderful space but for that some of them it's also troubling the ways in which that space can sort of take on another sort of hegemonic identity and i think we've sort of been questioning the ways in which even in alternative spaces, there can be ways in which another sort of identity gets affirmed as sort of the centered normative identity. It's important to sort of question that. Queer diaspora is one way that we're working against the sort of identity politics and trying to think of something else that may allow coalitions that aren't just rooted in identity. And I think, once again, queer diaspora isn't the be-all end-all. It's not just to say that it's going to do everything, but I think it's trying to sort of question a limited narrative identity politics and may get us to also think about this in this more transnational framework and think about the ways in which that category of queer of color is so di- like diverse and capacious that it holds so many of us in that sort of category. And it's important to think about the differences within that category. And that's what gets us to sort of um, challenging these spaces and creating spaces that are more ethical and more just. Um, I'd be really interesting to hear about Ferdi's perspective about queer spaces but in the case of Dabakla, it is a metamorphosis of being. It is deeply rooted in us. So we are not shifting from one gender to another. We believe that we are women. We believe that we are different from society. So just like the hijra in India, so the West perhaps will not be able to grasp the essence of the hijra as uh, queer individuals who would not like to dress up according to, the, to their biological constitution. The same is true with the bakla. If we are going to look at these concepts, making use of local languages as a form of resistance and refusal, we're able to find out that being queer, whether it is performance, whether it is a mode of desiring, is actually happening in places like Manila or the Philippines. There were already queer balls that happened in the city of Manila as early as the 1930s. So that is something that antedates the drug balls in Harlem City of the 60s. A Filipino, for example, will be finding it uncomfortable to make use of the term Far East in referring to China, to Korea, Taiwan, to India, when this is a part of Asia that is near to us and not far. So English language, if it is something that molds people's mind, and we are using language in the discourse of the city, so how do we possibly come up with all these forms of intervention that try to question the formation of this urbaness, at, at the same time, pay attention to cultural diversity. So how, how do we do that? It has become a part of the vocabulary of the discipline. How come disciplines practically remain the same? And scholarship, no matter how radical, no matter how forward-looking uh, they seem to be, they still for me, fall flat. Thank you so much for that. 
I'm so sorry that I didn't get a chance to talk to you a bit more earlier um, in our conversation. However, you have left us with a kind of jumping off point that I kind of really want to get into. And so I kind of really want to talk about the role of language, naming oneself and how that is done, especially if we consider the city as not just a diasporic space, but a space in which not all aspects of life are regulated. And, you know, in that there's possibility. What is, you know, the role of language in queerness and how do we bring that use of language into kind of a liberatory framework? When we're saying language, um, like some examples (laughs) or what your sort of thought line was when you're saying the word language. How is it that you all use language as a way of either liberating yourselves, have seen it used by others? What is the role of language and queerness and coming to, you know, be oneself? My experience with language and sort of queerness and sort of queerness outside of Toronto and Canada would be very specific to Korea and sort of my participation in Korea. And honestly, mostly reveals like just my privilege and my mobility more than anything. And I don't really have any complex insights in terms of language because I don't speak Korean. And that was my experience as a part of the Korean diaspora. I just, my, I didn't get that opportunity to learn it. So when I'm there, I'm very much like engaging as someone who is from Canada and only speaks English and like is participating in queer spaces. But I can only figure out like what things are by like, translating it through Google and for me it's like I'm I'm experiencing like queer Korea very much through um, someone who's not connected to the culture through its language and I even know that um, like certain terms are said in Korean but they're actually just like the English words so like gay but you just say it with a Korean accent or transgender be transgender like stuff like that that I just don't even really know much about, but I know that we continue to see the ways in which um, language is sort of like a contested site of naming oneself. And um, definitely the West has had an impact on how we understand and formulate queerness in Korea. But I would just point people to read if they are interested in thinking about Korea and queerness, just read uh, Queer Korea from Duke University Press is just released this February. And it holds good sort of insights and sort of potentials to think about Korea as a sort of queer space and the ways in which they formulate gender and sexuality there. When I arrived here in 2019, represent myself as a bakla, the next thing that follows will be questions. Not that I hate explaining to people what bakla is, but one of uh, the adjustments that I had to make has something to do with the pronoun. In the Philippines, I did not give so much attention on how I am addressed as a person. I taught in a Catholic university for almost 30 years, three decades. And whenever students addressed me, because it is something that is customary in the university for a teacher who has this male biological makeup to be addressed as sir, even if I would grow my hair shoulder length and I would wear women's clothes. My students think that it is a sign of respect that I should be called sir. And I do not call their call out their attention to the fact that I look feminine. So I think I deserve to be called she or I prefer the pronoun her or she. It does not matter to me when I was in the Philippines because I know when a person is trying to ridicule me by referring to me as uh, mom, sir, or sir, mom, or mom, and I could easily detect whether that person will say it in a manner that is respectful or spiteful. We use the Filipino language, which is genderless. A person other than self could be referred to as she, that person. So that person could be a male or a female. Does not matter. It is non-gendered. Be a representation of a part of gayness and transness and queerness. The fact that the West has already compartmentalized identity to something which is easily identified and identifiable, 
I think that the notion of resistance and refusal lies in the fact that I make use of this term as self-ascription, bakla, as a way for the West not to be able to understand me. And that in itself is queer. That, thank you so much for that contribution. I know I um, have said that multiple times during this you know, episode. When you were posing the question about how our lives are regulated, that made me think about the steps that um, queer immigrants, queer refugees have to take when they come to Toronto. So they're giving a very particular script in terms of how they are, how they are expected to perform gay identity. And having listened to Sam and Ferdy, I think, or I'm wondering anyway, if maybe we, like, what, what does it look like if we, if we brought those terms with us? Um, and to go to Ferdy's point in particular, this idea of history and geography, like terms like Bakla place us, contextualize us, historicizes us in ways that gay cannot and does not. Um, often when I think about the term gay, you know, I, it conjures images for me anyway of, you know, bars and clubs um, and pride marches. And that isn't the, the kind of context for everyone. So what does it mean? What would it look like rather if you're able to come to countries like Canada and say and use words like bakla or hijra or bati boy or fish or chichiman or bullerman um, or any of the other terms that uh, have been created in these specific geographic and cultural sites. I also think it does a particular kind of historical work in terms of in some places there's this sense that, oh, you know, queerness doesn't exist here or queerness was imported here. But the fact that these terms exist and have existed for decades suggests that, they, that there was a particular kind of um, presence um, beforehand. Uh, I'm also thinking about like how, I mean, for better, for better or worse, I guess, a lot of Toronto slang is informed by Caribbean uh, language. And so I'm wondering if they're like, does it help? Does it hurt potentially if we are able to like make space for those terms in our queer uh, discursive systems in a city like Toronto, right? If we if we don't, if we aren't forcing people to constrain themselves into these uh, categories that don't speak to their personhood or their lives. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that has been one way, at least in my own circle, um, that there is a reclamation of terms like Batty boy and fish and that way and stay so and all of these kinds of uh, words. Um, so you know, listening to you speak about you know, does the terms like would using them help or or hurt? You know, one thing that I'm honestly you know I'm recalling and I recall it very you know, you know, in so much sadness at the fact that settler colonialism has has caused this is that you know two spirit people um you know in the united states and also here in canada the lgbtq um that term you know adding two spirit to it you know to us now and us here it may not seem like it was you know such a big issue but you know to this day even in the united states they they struggle to you know even have these conversations because you know in 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 some of the ways that the you know quote-unquote lgbtq have been you know dominated by whiteness and so you know i'm also um stuck on that question and i and i feel like there needs to be a better you know framework um or even system for us to even, you know, have the possibility of doing it without it being, you know, kind of up for debates because, you know, people should not be up for debate. I take uh, note of what Berlant said, that these troubling times that we find ourselves in, like, for example, time of the pandemic is that it is a city in transition and it should be like what Arundhati Roy said, a portal, a city that has gates, a city that whose gates remain 
open, open in such a way that it allows differences. It talks about a space of plurality. Here we find that people make use of this, a city that is emerging out of this crisis. Uh, Raymond William called this an emergency. And out of this emergency, which is rooted from the word emergence, can come up with creative ways by which people can inhabit the city and make the city, again, a livable place. Wow, that is that is something that is so, you know, it's so new to me. And I, I think, you know, the one thing that, you know, I was thinking in the back of my head while hearing all of this was, you know, just how much we here in the West, you know, compartmentalize identity, the way that we perceive and immediately move into saris, you know, based off of our own, you know, you know, perceptions um, based purely on Western standards. And I'm, you know, reminded of the ways that we think of gender here in the West, which is, you know, it is always something between a male and a female gender and even transness in, you know, Western, you know, perception is conceived of as, you know, one or the other, or kind of in between these two, you know, polar opposites. It's very much thought of, you know, in a binary, even in non-binary senses. That's how um, many in, you know, the settler colonial West, you know, conceive of gender. Um, And so, you know, moving on from that, I, you know, I don't want to at all dismiss, you know, queerness to queerness, you know, that's not the purpose of this podcast. What I now kind of want to do as we move towards the end is, you know, take the ways in which, you know, queerness has, you know, been discussed today, be it, you know, as people, relationships, and relationality, and kind of, you know, move towards, you know, in seeing that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has, you know, it has really transformed the ways in which communities have to be responsive and there for each other. And, you know, queerness gives us this imaginative possibilities to, you know, build something different. And so as we leave, I, if all of our contributors, if you'd want to, you know, how is it that we can you know, if there is one thing you could point to, um, I would like to hear what it is that in this, you know, COVID-19 world and even after it, how is it that we can build our, you know, city spaces, the urban, and not just the urban itself, but considering the urban's relationships with the world, how can we build it to, you know, be responsive, flexible, have possibility, respect these types of things. You know, it's a loaded question. Please take as much time as you need to answer it. It's open-ended on purpose because I really want to, you know, ensure that these generative things we're talking about, you know, are able to lead to other discussions, possibilities, and, you know, ways of doing things that are innovative. So my uh, doctoral work, uh, focuses or is explicitly about the importance of physical contact um, for Black queer men. And one of the things I've been thinking about this entire time is how important contact is just generally for people. I think there is a way that city culture estranges us from each other. But then with COVID, I think understandably people are have experienced a particular kind of isolation in my mind i think this is felt more acutely among queer communities because of our own precarious relationships to families uh to institutions um you know also thinking about the fact that historically the queer community has been told by the state that we are supposed to Uh, stay away from each other and you know I'm thinking about that too in relation to seeing like looking at how people are spending their time together so I went out to go for a walk earlier in the summer and I didn't realize how many people were in the neighborhood because there was this overwhelming crowd at the the park and it made me sad that you know people don't get to make use of the you know outdoor space generally speaking and so I think 
And I, I also remember too, um, the, the, the league that I was talking about earlier, even when things started shutting down, you know, the queer people who are a part of the league were still very much against this idea of not doing hogs, of not doing high fives. And so not being able to be in physical proximity with your community, not being able to touch people who are in your community have been really difficult. Are there other ways for urban planners, for policymakers to make it more possible for people to be able to be present with each other? I wish we had more time to talk about this idea of sort of a different future or a different present moment. As we all know, this moment that we live in feels sort of unprecedented and we're recognizing the sort of deep inequities that have always existed and that are just sort of becoming apparent to um, in mainstream sort of discourse. But those on the margins have always known that our city has been hit with gross inequities and we like to present ourselves as sort of a wonderful liberal multicultural city, but it fails to sort of be safe for many individuals. Um, And I think what, at least what I'll just say, and this is a short point, is that even though with our sort of like suspicion of the failures of identity politics, where I think identity does give us is like, the language for a critique, um, like our lived experiences through the language of identity, while can sometimes be narrow and it can sort of be a limited understanding of justice, it does sort of blend itself to just having language to critique um, our current norms right now and the ways in which our uh, city is structured and is really lends itself to very particular um individual to have mobility and like quote-unquote freedom in this city or ability to even just survive and and thrive so I think we listening and sort of listening to that critique and sort of taking rethinking the structures in which we are of who is allowed to speak and who is given um, the space to describe their understanding and experience of the city I think is one way in which we can um work towards something else. And especially when we think of queers and the way that we've conceived of queer during this conversation is a powerful way of recognizing the failures in the city and and demanding something better. I wanna thank you for being here. I think this brings us to an end. Your contributions have all been fantastic and I appreciate them a lot. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to everyone and all you've brought today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.